Hey everybody, welcome to Mark's Movie Collection. Welcome back, I should say. I hope that you, well, I don't hope that you listened to the last episode because it was bad. And it got turned into a bonus and kind of like a trailer for Chinatown. So I don't have to go into it too much here. Because I kind of did that in the last episode, uh, very drunk, unfortunately. And that is a, a word I struggle to say in a way that I enjoy hearing. But yeah, unfortunately, that episode was awful. So most of it is on the cutting room floor, as it were. But I did final, finally go ahead and get to watch Chinatown and kind of relive it. I actually first saw Chinatown in high school for a class. and. The majority of it was lost upon me, but it was that inkling, that idea that there is so much more that a movie can be. That's kind of how that started. So so I guess I'm going to roll the piano and we'll get right into it. Okay, so I'm going to make a quick connection throwback to the previous episode, which was the previous full episode, which was LA Confidential. And that is Jerry Goldsmith. Jerry Goldsmith also did the wonderful score for Chinatown. And Jerry Goldsmith, if you don't know the name, you you definitely know the music. Uh, he literally won, I think, one Academy Award for The Omen, but he's done so much music, so, so much. Uh, Star Trek The Motion Picture, Planet of the Apes, The Man from Uncle, and more. But Jerry Goldsmith apparently was the composer of the Universal Fanfare. The... No, that's Fox. Uh, is it Fox? Jeez, now I have to hear it. Uh, Universal Fanfare. Okay, it's... That one. The other one was Fox. The Universal Fanfare is really good, though. But they don't really show it in many movies. The one that really 
kind of called that one out for me was Scott Pilgrim because they did it in uh, kind of like an 8-bit motif or 8-bit sound design. So that was really cool. But yeah, composer of the Universal Fanfare, apparently. And Jerry Goldsmith in Chinatown also features horns like he did in L.A. Confidential. And there is maybe a lot holistically to kind of see the parallels in. He was probably in a similar mindset for both movies. These are very mournful, lonesome uh, horn pieces that are quite beautiful, I think, quite quite wonderful, quite lonely. You know, Spotify's been recommending to me dark jazz, and that's kind of where this ends up. It ends up in like a, you know, or, or perhaps created, right, the dark jazz space where it's the dying ember of a cigarette in a darkened vestibule on a rainy day, a foggy evening, I guess, in San Francisco, or Chinatown, as it would be. So Jerry Goldsmith has a lot of um, punctuation in this movie. He had le less punctuation, more transition. In LA Confidential, in this movie, it's it's more punctuation. And he hits you with that Chinatown theme. So I pointed out that Roman Polanski was uh, a fugitive from justice. And it's an interesting... An interesting case. He, uh, in 1977, was arrested and charged for drugging and raping a 13-year-old girl. He pled guilty to a lesser offense of um, unlawful sex with a minor, statutory rape, whatever you want to call it, and then fled the country. As you know, this movie has John Huston as a star, and I recently read an interview with Angelica Houston because she is coming out in John Wick chapter three. And she kind of touches on that a little bit as an maybe in a more so the how shall I put it? The Angelica Houston interview on vulture.com is really interesting and she seems very fascinating. But she kind of implies maybe or or washes over the Roman Polanski thing is that's just how how things were. And it wasn't necessarily maybe as bad as we in 2019 might think that it was because we have our own perspective and, and at least I definitely don't have the perspective of, you know, the seventies or old Europe or whatever the case was. But in researching a little for, uh, uh, just a tiny bit more, I saw that his victim was, you know, pleased that he isn't going to be extradited and said that she had recovered a long time ago. I don't know if that's better or worse, but it is kind of putting the pin in that. I think at this point, nobody cares. So that's probably how he is 
you know, kind of back in making movies or he has been making movies through time and things like that. I think, you know, maybe the, the, the people that needed to know knew maybe the bigger story and felt that it was fine. So I don't know the story. So I'm not going to come down on any one side of that or the other, but it's not something I would do at all ever. And there's that. So now that we've got all of the, I guess, accounting done, right? Let's talk about Chinatown. What a wonderful movie. What a beautiful movie. What a gorgeous movie. I think maybe a defining trait of the Chinatown feel, if you will, if it's a, a phrase that I can coin right now. The Chinatown feel is a camera that isn't afraid of moving, that doesn't move for no reason. And in a lot of videos, you'll see uh, motivated camera moves and, and things like that, and they hold truer than others sometimes. But that camera is, is not afraid to move. And a lot of times it's used to reveal line of sight for the characters or to reveal characters with a line of sight, which is similar to the Man With No Name trilogy, um, the Sergio Leone movies uh, starring Clint Eastwood, where the camera is the sight of the characters. Like, in this movie, the camera illustrates the sight of the characters to us, the audience, or illustrates to us, the audience, who can see what we are seeing, what situation we're seeing. So that's, that's a lot of it. Um, there are some pushes in for effect as well, which are wonderful and slow. But um, a good example is when uh, Jake and Evelyn meet for the first time, right? The, the camera swings a little bit when he looks back to to see his coworkers to be like, hey guys, you, you help me out here, guys. You know, like I need support. The camera swings a tiny bit. Like if you're if you're moving with him or looking back with him, and then when she goes to drop that fucking knowledge on him, it kind of pushes in so that it's just all the more intense. So that's one thing that I really liked about this movie you know obviously the the music is beautiful it is you know very of the time and i one could maybe call it stereotypical but i think that it actually set the stereotype for us now in the future right i think it did it so well that it overrode what would potentially be perceived as normal up until then you know i, I think coming go, go following that thread pulling on that thread a little bit it's technically a period piece it's set in 1937 it was it was made in 19 you know 73 74 in there and a lot of the sets feel sparse not all of them but it's it's often that you'll see like a bare wall with one frame on it that kind of thing so i think it sits comfortably in the middle ground between a movie from 1937 and L.A. Confidential, which is the more contemporary version of the same style of movie. So it almost feels like whoever 
was doing sets and stuff like that, or, or whoever was kind of in charge of the creative vision of Chinatown, felt that these old Hollywood pictures were documentarian in a way, and that things did look like that generally. So, you know, it's a lot of the things that LA Confidential didn't want explicitly that Curtis Hansen rejected and denied. So we'll see a lot of single point of light and the, the long shadows and things like that in this movie as well, but it is still absolutely gorgeous and definitely an improvement over the, you know, a technical improvement, I should say, over the films, you know, made before the films that it took influence from. You know, they also, they, they make the old credits, the credit sequences, like how they make the old ones, which is like some type of like cutout filmed over like a fabric pattern and things like that. And I made uh, an animation like that for the Scumbags YouTube channel, and that is S-E-U-M-M-B-A-G-S, and that involved kind of going into um, the cinema 3D aspect of Creative Cloud and getting a, a pattern and a fabric pattern, putting it behind like this actual 3D text and, and giving it some jitter. So this is essentially the real deal. Like they had a camera set up and then they had these cutout texts, like things in front of a fabric pattern. And that's how you get that, that three dimension, three dimensionality. There was actually depth in that. So I'm assuming that's what they did for this movie as well. So I don't know where else to go, except let's go right into to Jake. Jake Giddis. J.J. Giddis, right? Our Jack Nicholson portrayed Private Eye. I, I was about to say Silent Detective. That doesn't fucking make a lick of sense. Our, our Private Eye, right? Our P.I., our, our, our Dick, our Gumshoe, our Seamus, if you will. Jake is super into being the center of attention. He's very narcissistic, I think, in a way. And there's a lot of fuel to that fire, right? He um he gets pretty salty about kind of getting called out about the paper and and stuff like that. The 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 gentleman at the barber shop is like, "You're a piece of shit." And he's like, "Fuck you, man." And he gets really weird about it. But then the barber, the barber tells him a joke to like, kind of like get him to chill out. And he, he thinks it's wonderful, but then he, he runs back to his office to kind of perform the joke for, for his coworkers. Like if it's a, a stage production, like if it's the most intense thing that the, the, the thing that has mattered the most to him, to, to be the, the comedian, to get that laugh, to kind of be in control of that situation and to receive all of that feedback. And I think maybe that, I don't know if that's a defense mechanism or not. And to be fair, I haven't done a lot of research circumspect to the movie as I normally do, but I, I'm, I'm watching the movie with very critical eyes because I knew that I didn't have enough time to really get out there and consume a lot of information and, and, and go digging. So I don't know if this is based on source material or what the case is, but 
it feels like a defense mechanism, this narcissism. And that's why he got out of Chinatown. He was an, an ex-police officer, but was he seduced by money? Was he just hurt? And... Okay, spoilers. Like 110 million percent, there will be a lot of critical spoilers in this discussion. So if you haven't seen the movie, please stop now. Find the movie, watch it. I don't know where it is. I have an actual DVD. So it's, I'm sure it's somewhere. Like I said, been super busy recording this at, at 1.50 at night. That That's where I'm at right now. 1.50 a.m. here in the podcast. Here in your ears, talking movies. So a lot of stuff has gone on with Jake and his morality seems loose and things like that, but he definitely has a measure of integrity and a measure of curiosity. And these are, are maybe the best things that one could ask for, right? So he wants to, he wants to know, and he wants to be on the right side of this whole thing. And that is mostly the fuel for most of this movie hilariously enough this um maybe fallen from grace narcissistic greedy amoral shyster almost not quite because he he does the job so he's not scamming anybody but he um he doesn't seem like a good guy at the beginning for a lot of reasons and it turns out that he is a good guy, and it turns out that him being a good guy fucks everything up. And that is a, a, a really beautiful, wonderful turn of story, right? This uh, tragic flaw that you don't know until you know. Like I said, if you didn't watch this, well, fuck. And to kind of go even further into that, I'm going to talk about uh, Faye Dunaway's performance. Faye Dunaway is has one of the more amazing performances that I've seen ever in a sixth sense tier performance where instead of her instead of being disaffected as Bruce Willis was she is so effective affected and effective i guess and it seems crazy it seems wild it seems insane until you know the subtext until you watch the movie again and you have already pieced it together And I think the key to that the whole time is understanding that throughout the entirety of the movie, she knows. She knows everything. She is probably the smartest of all of the characters. And that's saying a lot because, you know, Jake is a really sharp guy for sure, but she knows she knows the whole time and and maybe that's the 
perfect fuel for the dramatic irony is that Jake is just trying to do the right thing. And she knows that the right thing to do is the wrong thing to do. And those two circumstances collide in very tragic, a very tragic ending. And I don't think that this is necessarily lost upon the audience. I'd like to think that I'd like to think that the audience understands this, but maybe not on a conscious level, but more a subconscious level. How beautiful and perfect this was. So she knows. The subtext is real. It's palpable. When, when Jake goes to meet Evelyn at her house, Hollis is already dead. Jake doesn't know, but she does, and she is trying to cancel... She's trying to stall. She's trying to divert, deflect. She knows. When Jake is, is putting the pieces together in the morgue and he's asking the, the coroner, like, what's up with this guy? What's up with this drunk? And he revisits the riverbed. You know, he retraces Hollis's steps, like going through all that, knowing the end result, knowing the solutions to the questions that he's asking himself. Watching that again, it feels really good. You know, when they when they have dinner together, or lunch maybe, as it would be because it seemed daytime, Jake and Evelyn in what looks to be the Formosa, same restaurant as LA Confidential, she's building a lie in front of him, but she's literally using every scrap that he gives her. He is naive and offering up information, and she's like, Yes, that. And she would seem crazy to a casual observer, but she knows that whole time. Another scene uh, with regards to subtext that I do love is when Jake finally goes to talk to Noah Cross. They have that weird kind of exchange, and he's like, you know, whatever, that are you sleeping with my daughter and all that stuff? And then Noah Cross stands up and he's waving at the band, the mariachi or, or whatever that he allows, that he grants the ability to practice on his property. And Jake says, well, I've got pictures of Hollis's girlfriend. And you see the smile. You see the smile on Noah Cross's face just disappear. Just disappear completely. Just fucking run away. When Jake asks him, like, what what is it that you want or whatever, Noah Cross responds, my daughter. You don't know what he means. But after, at the end of the movie, you do know what he means. Another really fun scene is talking to, <laughs> talking to the gentleman at the retirement home. And Faye Dunaway makes some really spectacular choices here. I mean, she does it throughout the movie, but her her face throughout the scene, Jack Nicholson is uh, acting as Jake acting. It's so good. So one of the things that I might really super duper mega like is actors acting as characters who are actors or acting. That's really funny to me. I... I, I guess I just like the additional, the layer, that complexity. Kind of like how I like the additional layer of the meta 
in certain things. Like a perfect example. I listened to Hello from the Magic Tavern. I love Hello from the Magic Tavern. And one of the things that I love about Hello from the Magic Tavern, which may not necessarily be desirable, but has kind of organically come up, is the metagame of the improvisers improvising and how that plays out. I really, really love that. Uh, same thing for the Adventure Zone. I really love the plot of the gameplay in the Adventure Zone, but I love the metagame between the McElroys, and they're trying to kind of unravel how the Dungeon Master has set things up and how the Dungeon Master also kind of gaming on how people will react to certain situations. And then also on Dungeons and Daddies, if I was plugging all that other stuff, I'll plug this too. On Dungeons and Daddies, I love the metagame of how badly can the uh, Rocket Jump Boys just mess things up? Just how badly can they do it? And, and wh what, is, what is Ron Statler going to do? What is Ron going to do? I want to know. So I think that additional layer, that additional complexity is that icing on the cake that really kind of gets me going you know so robert downey jr and tropic thunder you know me i know who i am i'm the dude playing the dude disguised as another, uh, disguised as another dude i'm sorry i messed that up there's a really cool uh song about that on youtube just type in me i know who i am so the subtext continues let's 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 go more subtext let's go to the sex scene sex scenes a lot of times are used to titillate the male audience or to make a cast member more desirable to attract audiences of the opposite sex or whatever. A very popular one is Top Gun did not originally have a sex scene, but it didn't test well. And the implication there, I guess, is that everyone was gay. Right, and audiences, especially at that time, were not about that. This sex scene is so wonderful because we have so many questions, and they start out with, did she ever love Hollis? Did Hollis marry her to cover up the pregnancy? Is that what Noah meant by them being so close? Because Hollis, Hollis definitely knew all along. So did he marry Evelyn to protect her? And her daughter, and the answer is yes, and yes, and yes, and yes. And then uh, Evelyn drops the uh, Cherchez la Femme, right? Cherchez la Femme, find the woman. Cherchez la Femme Noire, find the woman in black. That's a Stephen King, Hearts in Atlantis uh, kind of thing. He's playing Hearts, you know, Black Queen, things like that. Cherchez la Femme Noire. But they start talking about Chinatown and how Jake tried to protect from someone from getting hurt, and they got hurt. And that is definite foreshadowing. And right then and there, right then and there, in this sex scene, which should be this, like, ooh, sexy, like, oh, wow, arousing scene, is actually the fulcrum around which the movie swings. The movie was swinging 
using gravity up until this point, and now it's swinging on inertia afterwards. It's the craziest thing because, like I said, what makes him a good cop and good investigator literally spoils their relationship right then and there and sets in motion the rest of the movie. And her body language, when, when Jake tells her that he saw her father, that he talked to Noah, wow. Like, what a, what a performance and what a way to, to handle a sex scene is to have it be unsexy and unnude, the opposite. And when, when she tells him, this is wonderful, when she tells him that he's dangerous, she thinks that she's dissuading him, but she's not. She is only emboldening him, and she has given him information, new information, clues, and essentially motivation at this point. He's been feeling kind of adrift, and he's like, oh, I don't know, I'll never solve this mystery, you know, but at least I have the girl, or whatever the case is. But now, now he's a dog with a scent, and she has done this by trying to get him away, by trying to push him away. He only comes on stronger, not in a sexual way, but definitely in an intimate way, a, a violation of, of some type of privacy or personal space. You know, and, and the the subtext continues, right? Like, everything with Lou Escobar is awesome. Uh, the She's My Sister scene is, like, wild, wild, wild subtext the first time that happens. And it's super crazy, like, holy crap. And right then and there, Jerry Goldsmith hits you with the Chinatown theme. Like, that's a punctuation. When a, a major scene happens, you get Chinatown. You know, there's also the, the bad for glass callback. Once you get the bad for glass callback, everybody knows. And Jerry Goldsmith just lights it up. You know, it comes back and and Jake confronts Evelyn and, and the thing with the bifocals. We all find out. 1712 Alameda. Right? Everything happens at 1712 Alameda. And Evelyn asks Jake, do you know where that is? And he says, sure. Of course he does. Because it's in Chinatown. The place that he's been trying to escape this whole time. The whole affair just takes him right back in. So we know this thing is fucking banging on story. It is all eight cylinders. It is popping. You know what I'm saying? Snap, crackle, pop. It is a suck, squeeze, bang, blow. The whole thing about water, water is 
wildly influential and uh there was a series on discovery maybe i'm not taking the time to look this up but i have seen a couple episodes and it was called how the states got their shapes and a lot of our states have irregular shapes the thesis of this show seems to be that most of this was around water and water disputes so the fact that water is a major motivator if not quite MacGuffin, really works, especially in Los Angeles, especially in the 30s, for all the reasons that um, even L.A. Noir said in the 50s, or L.A. Confidential said in the 50s, had going forward as well, right? This rapid development and things like that. So with that Freudian slip of uh, L.A. Noir versus L.A. Confidential, there are a, a good amount of L.A. Noir influences that I felt come, came directly from Chinatown. And one of them was looking through a big ledger book, like general investigating. You know, Jake opens that big, uh, long properties, like uh, kind of uh, assessor's book. And that felt very L.A. Noir. And the Jerry Goldsmith music, obviously. The bifocals in the pond and generally walking around looking for evidence also felt very L.A. Noir. So the apartment complex where Ida Sessions is, where, where Jake goes to see Ida Sessions, I believe was directly recreated in L.A. Noir. I believe that is still a thing, and they just recreated the whole thing. And I don't think that they ever mention it in Chinatown, but I know that... In Humphrey Bogart movies, and I can't kind of put my finger on which one, but in my head, I can hear him, you know, calling for the Bertillon man, right? And uh, I think it was Henri Bertillon, right? Because every French famous person's name is Henri. Uh, Bertillon is actually the beginning of forensic science early in the 1900s. Forensic science was not a thing. It didn't exist like, at all. Like, Conan, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was the closest thing to forensic science at that point. Probably. And Bertillion attempted to classify criminals based on the length of their limbs or, you know, identifying features like that, although they found quickly that this was not functional. And it didn't quite work, but, you know, fingerprints were better. And they still called fingerprint texts like Bertillion men and things like that for a bit. But just because fingerprints are, are in a place or DNA is in a place doesn't mean that the crime was done either. So it's complicated, but there is a thing called the CSI effect. And the CSI effect is that... Based on the CSI TV show or NCIS or Law and Order or any of these procedurals, but CSI specifically because they are the coolest forensic scientists with the most guns, because forensic scientists don't carry guns. The CSI effect has created a bias towards the public, right? Jurors, juries in overestimating the value of 
forensic evidence. If you find fingerprints at the scene of a crime that could imply, yes, that somebody was at that scene, but there's no, there's no time scope to that. That could have been 10 days ago, yesterday, five days ago. You don't know. 20 minutes ago, an hour ago. You don't know. And it's unfortunate how in court proceedings, it's difficult to kind of explain this to a, a, a jury of, of lay people who don't necessarily understand the science behind it or the scientific method even. They are, they are lay people. They are average Joes. They are you. They are me. The difference is that I actually really enjoy this shit and I study it myself. But there have been a lot of issues with forensic evidence and there's a bunch of Netflix documentaries about it and things like that. Like, I like forensics so much that I'm, I've considered um, changing career paths into information security and forensics. But when you're in InfoSec and forensics, you only have information security and forensics. That is your life. Whereas I only have one life to live with all my children as the world turns. General Hospital. And I'm not ready to make that career switch. If not now, if ever. But yeah, you know, he, Jake literally just paused a bunch of stuff in that apartment. And it was funny because my first instinct is, dude, you're fucking up this crime scene. But then I thought back a little more and I was like, they probably don't have fingerprints back then. Like, they wouldn't know. But there's also a lot of good uh, noir talk. You know, like Jake and Lou at the reservoir, when they when they kind of meet up again after the, a couple years. You know, it's like, how you doing, Lou? And it's uh, cold, I can't shake, but otherwise I'm fine. And the implication there is the cold he can't shake is Jake. And when Lou asks him, how'd you get down here? And uh, Jake tells him, well, Lou, to tell you the truth, I lied a little. I fucking love that shit. I love Jake uh, saying, you know, he's checking a detail or two with my associates. That's a very private eye kind of deal. Uh, metier is a good word, and metier comes up, I believe, with Noah Cross. When he gets his nose cut open by Roman Polanski. And he... <laughs> They tell him, that must really smart. And he's like, only when I breathe. You know, Nich Nicholson has the perfect countenance for this sarcastic, hot sarcasm one-liner. And, uh, you know, there's a part where, where he's talking to Noah Cross, and he's like, you know, she thinks her, her husband was murdered. And Noah asks him, how'd she get that idea? And he says, I think I gave it to her. And, uh... Things like, that's what the district attorney used to tell me in Chinatown. And then Noah Cross even gets some. He says, uh, he has a, a cool line. He says, uh, politicians, ugly buildings, and whores all get respectable if they last long enough. I believe was a Noah Cross line. I didn't attribute it to anybody, but I assumed that I would remember. And my memory feels like it was Noah Cross, but I may be wrong. There were also some shots that 
that blew my face off and a lot of attention was paid to the retirement home when they're walking into the retirement home there is the composition lighting and the push in to follow them that camera move you're walking up the steps with them and then it stops and this beautiful framing and the lighting is beautiful it's not quite a hundred percent but there's a nice practical inside we're getting the shadows of the bars coming out and there's a practical above them in frame but that's not doing the heavy lifting there's something big and hot just to the right behind a column that we can see a hot spot like just right at the top on the right hand side of the screen no one would have noticed if you weren't looking for it but i was definitely looking for it because i was loving that scene and i, I wanted to kind of reverse engineer it but the retirement home a lot was a lot of attention was paid to it because it was um plot wise very important you know, so Evelyn kind of blazing down the driveway. And there's subtext there, too, where he's like, get in the car and stuff like that. And she comes blasting down the driveway. He jumps on the running board. You know, Goldsmith theme to follow. Like, he just finished kicking the shit out of a guy. And, you know, that kind of gives you also the indication that that is how Jake used to be. That is Jake's maybe original modus operandi that's jake's chinatown coming out where he just go and fuck somebody up because you know because he did it without hesitating in fact he was planning it so that was a really 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 good scene and it was beautifully shot uh another scene that really kind of blew my face off was the the last scene the climax scene where the camera the camera is, is reeling. It doesn't know what to do. It doesn't even know where to focus. Like, it is aghast. It is shocked. It is shaken. And, you know, you hear Jake mutter as little as possible. And his, um, one of his guys is just like, forget it, Jake. It's Chinatown. <laughs> 